Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. All right, welcome to episode 16 of Zoomcron. That's short for the Chronicles of Zoomtown. I'm your host, Travis Mateer. It is January 4th as I record this, 2022. Happy New Year. Hope everyone had a safe holiday. I certainly enjoyed my time. I, I want to give another pitch to a local business here in Zoomtown, which is Missoula, Montana. Unhinged. Oh, man. I, I still need to give them a, a review on Google or whatever review system they have because that's really one of the main currencies of trying to get attention um, in the online commerce world. But um, if you want a tangible experience of destroying stuff with your family, I, I am now a firm believer in a in a new edict that I'm going to be living by, and that's that a, a family that destroys together stays together. Um, it is so much fun. My three kids got suited up in safety gear, as did mom, as did dad, which is me. And we had a full hour in multiple rooms to break things with a very different, you know, things like a crowbar, golf club, bat, um, even my, my little girl, my five-year-old was able to have quite a lot of fun destroying stuff. My middle kid, um, took a sledgehammer to a porcelain toilet and really seemed to, uh, enjoy that experience quite a lot. So that was, that was what we did on New Year's Eve. Then we ate some food. So a lot of fun. 2022 is going to be a heck of a year. I got all kinds of stuff planned right now. I am in an interesting situation. Um, this is an introduction to a old interview and I, I don't want to make it sound like it's old. It's not worth listening to. It is the reason I started the podcast. Um, my conversation with the Stevenson sisters in December of, Oh, that would have been 2020. Um, and then posted on January 5th, 2021. So, um, a year ago tomorrow, and that's a very significant date because Sean Stevenson, their family member, um, their brother in that situation, in that context, the two sisters I talked to, um, Sean is their brother, and Sean was assaulted allegedly by Johnny Lee Perry on January third, two thousand twenty, um, and then he was taken to St. Pat's and removed from life support on January fifth, two thousand twenty. Um, without his family ever being notified, um, that detail and many other details are included in the conversation, which I will be reposting in this episode of Zoomcron. So it, it, it's very apropos for me to be taking this time uh, to talk a little bit about updates, new information. Um, I've mentioned the the shooting death of Johnny Lee Perry by still unnamed sheriff deputies from the Missoula County Sheriff's Department. That happened on August 29th, 2021, so last summer. Um, and that shooting death on August 29th happened just about a little over a week um, after I posted footage of Johnny Lee Perry making pretty concerning comments 
um, as he was walking up and down the sidewalk on West Broadway in Missoula, Montana, very close to the Pavarello Center, the homeless shelter where Sean Stevenson was assaulted, allegedly, by Johnny Lee Perry. Um, whatever Johnny may have known about what happened that night um, is now gone with him since he is uh, no longer with us alive. But um, questions persist and questions persist that I continue looking into. Um, sometimes things sort of expand out a bit and get broader. My tendency would be towards scene patterns where maybe they, they aren't warranted. And when I talk to people about other things that might be happening in this community, um, that's definitely something I try and put out there up front that um, that's that's where my, my bias might be is towards scene patterns, towards cynicism, yeah, cynical patterns of, of abuse of power. Because really, right now, January 4th, 2022, uh, I sit here on the eve of putting out a documentary, uh, making public a documentary that has already been uploaded to Vimeo. Um, there's a few others, just final touches, details, things that need to be done. Uh, but we uploaded it on January 3rd. So that's now two years to the day that Sean was assaulted. And I'm hoping to make it public on January 5th. And that's two years to the day that Sean was removed from life support from, well, not from, but in St. Pat's Hospital. Uh, some of my more recent reporting, I, I wrote a blog post at Zoomcron blog. That's renamed after it was Reptile Dysfunction. That's with an R. Ha, ha, ha. Um, but I, I wrote about an attempt I made to get details about the policy St. Pat's, which is overseen by Providence Health Center. Um, or Pro Providence Health, I, I wanted to understand their policies for removing someone from life support. And I was told by the risk management person that called me back after I made my online inquiry that that information, along with really any policy poly question, po policy question someone like me might have, um, is proprietary and would require litigation to, to get. So, wow, that's, that's something, you know, and again, Questions persist, um, and I won't get into specific questions here on the on the second anniversary of um, this period of time in the family of the Stevensons who are not able to be here in Missoula in person to to get things moving forward. Um, there's another situation and another family I'm I'm talking to, not anything I'm going to get into details about now, but. I've been thinking about the the contrast between this this other family and the Stevenson family. And <clears throat> excuse me. One of the contrasts is that this other family has been able to come out here in person. And so instead of making phone calls, which is what you would have to do if you were remote or going online, um, they are able to be here in person. And that changes the dynamics in terms of holding people accountable if things are not happening, if local law enforcement's not accepting help from a nonprofit, for example. So it's it's interesting to think about those kinds of differences um, when you think about justice and what it actually requires in this day and age to, to get justice. Do you have to become your own detective? Do you have to crowdsource justice through Facebook groups, um, online sleuths, citizen journalists like me who, you know, who knows what I am, a, what my interest is. 
Um, of course, I'm very upfront when I talk to people about what my self-interest is. And in this situation, um, it's understanding what is going on in this fucking community because there are big questions that need some serious answers from people in power. And unfortunately, those people in power have been around for a long time and are very diligent about holding on to that power and using, let's say, Montana's lack of uh, teeth when it comes to disclosure, you know, transparency laws. Not a lot of teeth in this state to force transparency on a situation that we have with a 16-year uh, forever mayor who is now got sworn in for the sixth time. Yeah, Mayor Engen. Um, some some of the details I'm looking into in terms of getting this this documentary out there. Um, I'm not going to get into the details now. I'm just oh, it's been fun. It's been so much fun working creatively with um, some amazing people. It's been a long time coming. I'm actually pretty darn amazed what we have accomplished in a relatively short amount of time when you think about the turnaround of sifting through the amount of material. And when, when you think about the length of a, of a project, the length of our project being what I will call long, you know, one sitting might be a challenge, but in this new online streaming world where people are binge watching Tiger King, good Lord, did I do that? Yeah, I did. Sorry, not sorry. But in this new world of streaming, um, we're pretty confident that a three and a half hour runtime is not going to dissuade people from seeing this three part series. And um, it really is a three part, three part approach to a, a an amazing four month time period from October 2019, when J. Kevin Hunt, God bless him, got the ball rolling by bringing attention to not just a use of public money, um, but really, I think, uh, um, <laughs> oh, oh, some 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 pretty interesting stuff. Uh, but I do see a message coming in now, and so things that I have pre-planned are going to to get going. So. Um, I'm going to respond to this text and then I am going to wrap this up. All right. Okay. So coming up, we have my conversation, conversation with Jayshell and Angela Stevenson, sisters of Sean Stevenson, um, who I don't want to say passed away because that that's not really accurate. Um, removed from life support let's just leave it at that on january 5th 2020 here in st pat's in missoula montana um, this conversation was recorded december 2020 and first put out on january 5th 2021 thank you for listening i am travis mateer you can reach out to me at willskink at yahoo.com that's w-i-l-l-s-k-i-n-k at yahoo.com thank you um I think I have things recording. It looks like the input's going. So good morning, Jayshell Stevenson morning. and Angela Stevenson. Thank you yeah. so much for being here. Um, my name is Travis Matier. Um, this is the first time I'm doing an interview, and so I'm nervous, and I know the Stevenson sisters are a little nervous. Yeah. And <laughs> we are talking about a heavy subject. Um, we are talking about what happened to their brother, Sean Stevenson. Ooh, I hear that. Do you hear that in the, the noise in the background? Yeah. Can you hear it very loudly? 
you know, it's, it, I think it's okay. Um, I'm going to have background noises too, and it's just going to be the nature of how we have to communicate with technology via Skype. So, um, just, okay. I'm, I'll, I'll try to make an adjustment, but we're near a, a busy street. So that, that's yeah, why that's, and that's fine. That's fine. And that noise happened right as we basically said, it's going to be a heavy conversation <laughs> about your right. brother, um, who is no longer with us. And that is because something happened at the Pavarello Center on January 3rd, 2020. Um, the Pavarello Center is a emergency shelter in Missoula, Montana. And it's a place I used to work. And I'm going to get, before we kind of have this conversation, before we start, I'm going to give a little bit of background about why I'm the one right now talking to you guys. Um, and, and that's going to help hopefully kind of set the context for not just talking about what happened to your brother, but the, the larger conversation that we will have as the noise is happening um, about what it sort of means to be homeless. Because the Pavarello Center is a shelter that also has people that stay overnight, that don't have homes or don't live in the conventional sense. So um, thank you so much for letting me kind of provide that, that information a bit. I'll be really quick with it. Um, the term homeless, I think you guys can agree, it really doesn't reflect um, the struggles that people have. And something like the Pavarello Center is, is, plays, a, plays a community role, really, um, for anyone that's looking to, to try and maybe network, um, charge their phones, take a shower, clean their clothes, um, receive mail, use the internet. Um, a lot of these just really things that maybe those of us that are more privileged take for granted you know, this, this is a center where um, all of this stuff is happening. Um, I worked there for seven years. Um, I left my job um, as the outreach coordinator in 2016, in February. So I haven't worked there in, in quite some time, but I'm still interested in what happens in, in this community. Uh, I still live here, and I've been writing pretty extensively about a lot of topics, homelessness being one of them. So I've been writing about what happened to your brother um, since it happened in January. And we have had conversations offline because you guys reached out pretty early on. Um, and I write under the pseudonym William Skink for anyone that's interested in sort of looking into that. Um, that, is, that is kind of where we stand with, with my role um, in trying to kind of understand and figure out what happened. So. With that said, I think we can go ahead. I'm going to look at the outlines and say I want to, you know, stay focused uh, as much as possible. I, I wanted you guys to talk maybe just a little bit about the pre-incident context is what I wrote. But um, what maybe Sean was going through in the weeks and months from your guys' perspective um, in, in December of Uh, so Sean had just recently moved to Montana, and I say recently, but I guess that's a relative <laughs> word. Um, he had moved to Montana after his daughter graduated from college. Mm -hmm. He was elated. She graduated with honors. She had a job, and he's like, great, you know, dad is done. I'm moving on to a new phase. And he moved to Montana with um, at least one friend. And was looking forward to, in the long term, starting a business there. Um, he was ecstatic about Montana. Elated. I, I, he fell in love with it. He moved from Denver. And he had seen a lot of changes in his beloved city. 
um, he lived in in Denver Denver for over twenty years. Right. Oh, wow. And yeah, and he loved it. And uh, but it changed, and he wanted something new, and so he moved to Montana. He established residence there. He had a driver's license. He had a job. And he was looking forward to moving into a new apartment. Well, and that's interesting um, that you say that because, and sorry to interrupt, but in the some of the initial reports um, in the media, you know, Sean was specifically referred to as being out of state. And I know that I, I sort of zeroed in when I was when I was writing about that because um, it didn't really make sense to me whether or not he was, you know, in state or out of state, what that really had to do with what happened to him. So I just wanted to exactly. sort of throw that in there, but continue. Please. Yes. I'm glad you threw that in there. Yeah. And that's actually also how we found you is through your blog. Yeah. We're able to yeah. Google because we weren't getting any information from anybody, from anybody else. So right. we were able to Google Sean and found your blog. Yeah. That's how we found you. Yeah. So it, it was very helpful to us in the first stages because we could tell that you had boots on the ground yes. and really knew what was happening there. Um, so yeah, he, he was in Montana and like I said, had a job that he was enjoying. I, I can't say that, you know, I knew it wasn't his end game because he went there to start a business. Um, but he, you know, he was there and he, he had working. established he himself. Working. Yes, he was working and he had an apartment that he was moving into. And I don't know the timeline, but I know he had already paid for it and had plans to move. Yeah. In. So, um, you know, that, that really does, I think, help give a little bit of a, a better understanding because the stigma or the, the image that people have in their minds when they hear that terrible term that does not reflect what people go through homeless is some dirty, disheveled guy on the street asking for money, not working, has a disability check or some mental health or addiction issue. And, and um, you know, I have had to fight that stigma when I was working at the shelter. Um, and I, I, I know how inaccurate that is. And then we're speaking now, um, having a recent tragedy, again, befall someone, you know, connected to the Pavarello Center. And, and the gentleman that, that, that violently lost his life was a very sweet, innocent man. Um, and so from working at the shelter, there are so many different types of folks. There are people with vulnerabilities. There are people that work. I mean, so many people that go through the Pavarello Center have jobs. And I know yes. the people working at the, at the shelter always say that, um, but it, it is absolutely true. You know, the working right. or the, the folks that are, um, that are really just needing to maybe get some food from the food pantry or something to, to make ends meet at the end of the month. I mean, that really is the reality for so many people. Um, and so... Sean was using services to some degree at the Pavarello Center. Um, he had stayed overnight, you know, at least probably a couple nights, I think, from your guys' understanding, right? And, and he, was, yes. um, he was staying there the night of January 3rd. Um, another okay. thing that I want to sort of mention to provide some context is the current policy at the Pavarello Center, as Sean was staying there, was that people could be under the influence of alcohol and or drugs. Um, and so that was that was official policy. Um, it's sort of a harm reduction, low barrier approach, if you want to use the the terms in the nonprofit world. Um, but I think it's important to to say that not because um, you know if someone was under the influence, it would justify anything that's alleged to have happened. But um, the environment at the shelter at the time was one where people could be under the influence. That was okay, and the behavior is is what was sort of addressed. If there was bad behavior, that was addressed. And so um, that is important because 
I think there's just a lot of questions and, and that's going to be part of it, but um, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much. Um, the, the pre-incident, the pre-incident um, kind of timeline, you know, in our conversations, you had mentioned that Sean had like missed a, a call, a birthday call, and that was unusual. Was that one of the red flags? Were there other things that sort of um, led you to maybe in hindsight think, was Sean going through something, struggling? Yeah, that was a, that was a, something that kind of came up later. We didn't really think it was right. necessarily a big deal until later. Yes. Um, and, and to be clear, we did, we, um, actually my kids spoke to him, um, and uh, your kids must've been there too, but they all spoke maybe about a week before he was attacked, um, right. at the Pavarello center. So, and it was just kind of, you know, it was the holiday time. So it was holiday cheer. What are the moms doing? We're the moms. Right. What are the moms doing? <laughs> Send holiday cheer. But, you know, Uncle Sean, no, Uncle Cool Dude yes, Uncle <laughs> would often call and just talk to the kids. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was his thing. And so it wasn't um, the earlier the earlier calls that were missed were not so... You know, it, we, it's something that we had to take note of in hindsight. Yeah. But we we had heard from him, you know, about six days before it happened. Right. Okay. So then that then that was the last contact was six days before January third. Yes. Right. Yes. So now I guess we should get into maybe just what the official story is. You you mentioned that Sean was attacked at the Pavarello Center, um, and I know. We know a lot now. Um, it's been almost a year since this the attack happened, but. Going back, um, and as family is first starting to find out what happened, what was your initial understanding of what what sort of physical altercation happened? We were informed that Sean had been placed in a rear naked chokehold. Okay. After being in an altercation at the Pavarello Center, and that's pretty much all that we were told initially. Um, we were told that he was tra transferred to St. Patrick's Hospital in Missoula okay. um, from the Pavarello Center. And that was kind of the official story. And I, I say official, I'll qualify that by saying that's what the police told us. But our lack of information from the police and from the hospital sent us on a search which is again how we came across your name because we were looking for anything in the news about what happened to Sean. So, so, and, and that search then, because you're given an initial story that, as you say, a rear naked chokehold, there was, there was some kind of altercation and ultimately Sean was strangled, lost consciousness and was transferred to the hospital. Um, yes. And so that's the, that's the general story. And your guys' search then is essentially an attempt to create a more accurate timeline of, okay, when exactly did this attack happen? Um, when was 911 called? Was it staff at the POV or other residents that called 911? Because this was alleged to have happened inside the men's dorm in the basement yes. of the Pavarello Center. Um, yes. It's important to note that there are no video cameras in the men's dorm, and so there's no camera footage, uh, allegedly, of, of what happened. Um, I don't know if people have their cell phones, but there's no official camera footage. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so the, the questions that started, started coming up, I would imagine, is, is how long did it take for emergency services to get to Sean um, after 911 was called? 
Um, and then once he's transferred to the hospital, you know, my understanding is he was still conscious to some degree and on life support. And so then there's a whole nother set of questions. So that's maybe focus then as you guys are looking at the timeline on the, the attack and then how long it took for the, the emergency responders to get to him. Let's start with that. You have all that. <laughs> okay. No, I want to make sure that you have all that because I just want to take a couple steps back. Okay. Because okay. before we could ask any of those questions, our first question was, how do you know that it's our brother? Okay. We didn't have fair identification in, from, from the police, from law enforcement, from the hospital, from anywhere that they had listed as a point of reference for or a us. point of contact so for us for information. Yes. So who yeah. identified the body and how did you know it was exactly? That's your first question. Okay. That, okay. That is definitely our first question. And to be quite frank, that still hasn't been answered. Wow. I mean, we, we know we have his ID and all of those things now, but no one has said we knew it was Sean because of this or that. But what was the, and what was the reaction? Because we checked his drivers. Right. What was the response you got when you asked that question, though? I mean, there was this level of certainty, right, that it was him? The, the yes. response was there was no doubt in our mind. There was no doubt in our mind. And, and you're giving air quotes because that, that is sort of the verbatim that was the response that you got. That is verbatim. I'll so, never, I, yeah, I will never forget the tone that he said it in. And just the snarkiness, just like she said, you know, there was no doubt in our mind. You know, that was how it was related to us. And, and so, you know, it, OK, if I was a family member, my mind would be speculating immediately. And I'm sure, you know, it's it's easy to, to start speculating because what what is behind that degree of certainty? But um, not speculating quite yet. Um, that's the response you got. So. He's identified, we'll just take that for, for granted, they were certain that it was Sean, so you were told that, and then, um, I mean, the, I guess the effort to even reach out to family in the first place before he was taken off life support is one of the big problems with what you guys are, are, are being faced with. Is that accurate? Yes, okay. absolutely. Talk a little bit about that. Um, well, you... It's hard to sum up, and then at the same time, it is. So, well, let me let me say let me say this let me say this really quick. Um, we live in a technological world in which Facebook exists, and it's actually pretty easy to find people in this day and age, right? Um, um, if there's any kind of question about you know who a family member might be, I mean, there there are tools that are so easy to use from from anyone that's really wanting to make an honest attempt. Um, and I'm just saying that as sort of context because. Um, Sean was taken off life support and, and family was not a part of that conversation before he was removed off life support. And so what's not your sure. understanding of, of why that happened? Um, well, in, in their reports, they claim that they used something called the LexisNexis system okay. to locate family. However, family wasn't notified. Right. And we pulled every, all of us, got together and pulled all of our phone records and compared. We didn't just say, hey, did anybody call you? Yes. I We asked each other for printouts of our phone logs to make sure that there was nothing wow. missed. Wow. January 1st. We did, yeah, we went far back. And and so from the 3rd to the, to the 5th, 
Uh, no, to the 6th, nobody yes. was con- contacted um, by phone from Montana. So you guys are looking into this because you know that you're, you're family grieving and maybe you missed something. Maybe a call got missed. So, right. so you're going and actually looking at the records to double check. Was there any yes. actual record of a call being made by the hospital, by anyone at the hospital, before, Sean was, re- before Sean was removed off life support? Okay. Yes. Right. And so it's, it, w- it was really interesting to us to see on print where the claims were that they attempted to call us. And so it was clear that that has to be documented in the medical record, but that didn't happen. And if you, I, I don't have access to the LexisNexis system, but when you talk about Facebook, it's like Facebook on steroids yeah. from what I've Okay, yeah. it is beyond thorough. And so um, if you knew that without a shadow of a doubt um, who Sean Stevenson was, then there is the chances of you not connecting with someone is in his family are so slim to none. His grandmother is on Facebook. His right. aunts and uncles are on Facebook. His, mom his, and dad. his mother and father, his, his sisters, sister. his nieces, his nephews, his daughter, his, you know, we're, we're all on Facebook, whether or not we utilize it or not is something different, but we're all on there. And that is just a baseline clue. It's a simple, it's just a simple yeah. clue. And um, but there's so uh, many other ways and they have so many other tools at their disposal. Um, We just can't comprehend comprehend at all any justification for them not contacting us. So so how long was that time frame? So Sean, Sean is the evening time at the Pavarello Center when this attack happens. He's taken to the hospital. When is he removed from life support? Is it January 3rd or is it the next day? It's actually 36 hours later. January. 5th. So January wow. 5th. Yes, January 5th in the morning. Sunday um, morning. Sunday morning he was removed from life support. Wow. Um so let's take a step back really quickly and now kind of think about another aspect of this. Um So the other person in this alleged two-person physical altercation is a person by the name of Johnny Lee Perry. Mm -hmm. Johnny Lee Perry was taken into custody pretty quickly after this this attack. Um, And he then was, and I'm not sure the specific dates and times, I'd have to refer to my notes, but... um, he, it was within 24 to 36 hours of Sean being attacked that Johnny was taken into custody and then released on his own recognizance from the county yes. detention facility. Absolutely. And that, you know, I just want to be really kind of clear, that is the point that I caught um, because I go to the county detention uh, portal and I, I check this from my old time at the pub. I, I, I look and see stuff like that. And so uh, I had seen that, that Johnny had been released and that just – my mind quickly went to how could they have so quickly determined not to hold this person who was involved in an altercation that resulted in someone's death? How could they have already released him? And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's important because that, that sort of was, you were being told that Johnny was in custody and you read on my blog that he'd already been released. Yes. Yes. And, and I, I really want to point out too, and I appreciate you saying allegedly, right? Because what they 
have told us, and when I say they, I say the official story that the police gave to both the district attorney's office and what they're giving to us. Right. And and I am taking the whole story into question in, in, in the timeline. So the only the only real thing where I feel like I can hang my hat on as truth um, is the time that he arrived at the hospital, the time perhaps that the ambulance arrived. But there's questions in our mind as we go back and listen and do our own personal research, even as to what time the first 911 call came in. Right. It's clear that more than one 911 call came in. Okay. It's not clear who they came from, but the fact that they sent so many uh, responders makes it clear that a lot came. So I would, uh, let me get back to your question, though, about... Um, uh, well, I, I don't. I help me, help me, Travis, well, about your question. Yeah, no, because I think I think once again we have to kind of take some steps back and go go back then, um, because it's it's been hard for me to sort of wrap my head around what the response was because you say there's multiple nine one one calls that usually for my work at the shelter and working with nine one one dispatch that raises a pretty high level of response need just having multiple calls coming in. Um, I, I think that that would be one reason why you said there were, you know, over a dozen police and first responders on scene. And so yeah, this was yeah. this was a big police response um, that that happened after the 911 calls came in. And it's sort of unclear in terms of were the police needing to secure the scene first before the EMTs could make their way from outside on the streets to the downstairs men's dorm where I would assume Sean's unconscious body was. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's a great point. And it's one of the questions that we pointedly asked the, the authorities and the first officer on the, on the scene. We asked him specifically, well, it was supposedly a very cold night in Montana. Mm -hmm. And um, we understood from news reports that the shelter was very crowded. Yeah. So in, immediately our response was, well, maybe this was a really bad fight, you know, and there had to be crowd control, as you said. Yeah. He was very clear. Emphatic. He was emphatic. There was no need for any kind of crowd control. And none. He, and it was also um, implied that this happened before check-in time. Okay. So there, there may or may not have been very yes. many people, people in, in in the shelter at that time, and they have not given us a specific number of how many people are were checked in at that time. We've gotten vague responses about who was supposed to be there, who wasn't supposed to be there, and what kind of check-in process there actually is. Um, but you, your, your question, um, forgive me, I, I got a little bit sidetracked, but your question was about Perry and how yes. long he actually spent in jail. And you're right. He was arrested. And according to authorities, he was arrested on, on site, view. On, view, on view, which is a fancy legal term for saying the police had caught him in the act. Yes, they had caught him in the act. They knew it was him. And so... One of the charges was that it was aggravated felony assault okay. um, amongst some other felony charges related. Negligent homicide. Yes, negligent homicide wow. um, um, relating to this uh, so-called altercation. And um, yes, he was, he was arrested 
within the hour of Sean being transmitted to the hospital. So I think he was in police custody within 15 minutes of Sean arriving to the hospital or definitely within that half hour. Um, And he spent the night in jail and they released him less than 18 hours later. Okay. Uh, And the claim was that uh, it was self-defense but there's no record of him going before any um, judge or magistrate or anyone other than the police to ascertain whether or not he should entitled be entitled to that defense. Because and that's that's so crazy. Normally, if someone is is being held overnight, um, they can make their their first appearance via video camera. Um, this was even this is pre-COVID, um, and so and I used to sit in on these um, in the municipal court and and watch as people made their first appearances back when I worked at the shelter because that would give me a lot more information about incidents that were that was happening with clients. And so, um, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, for both both your guys's family and, and for myself, um, the release of Johnny Lee Perry so quickly was the big red flag that raised so many questions um, because. When you think about it, um, the police would have had to have interviewed all of the witnesses and really determined that that everything was in line with with um, a, a justifiable use of force and self defense. Otherwise, they're releasing a potentially dangerous person back out into the community. It seems Absolutely. it seems incredibly fast for them to have made that determination. For them to to talk to people who might have been under the influence at the time, those witnesses would need some time to maybe sober up. Um, it would be hard sometimes for police just to find some of those clients. You know, again, I worked at the shelter, and so I understand some of these dynamics. And it made no sense to me that Johnny would be released. Um, and I know it made no sense to you guys. Not at all. And and in fact, based on their official story, the idea that justifiable force or self-defense could be employed doesn't even match their narrative. It doesn't even match their narrative. So those forces have to be equal. There has to be an equal feeling of threat for it to be justified. And, And in their official story, that's not even there. In fact, in their weeks later official story, it was not even Johnny that Sean was in an altercation with. And so how can someone who he was not, and, and, and they have a great legal term and basically it's, it's something along the lines of, you know, well, if somebody else life was threatened, then yes, he can be the hero. He can insert himself and he can insert himself and be, um, Uh, you know, I guess, exonerated by the same defense, which doesn't make any sense. But again, these are their official stories. Well, uh, and also according to their narrative, there was no, um, there was no punch or any sort of blow landed by Sean. Yes. Uh, So... If, if there's an equal and justifiable force, how is that? Right. Sean didn't have a weapon. He didn't have a weapon. Um, and according, I'm just reiterating what my sister yeah. just said. According to yeah. their 
official, even uh-huh. to what the police have said. Sean didn't hit anybody. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, what they said to us was that he had actually fallen. And, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but um, the extent of Sean's force against Perry was to pull his hoodie over his head. Now that's again part of their narrative of what happened. Uh-huh. I'm just I'm just regurgitating. Yeah. We don't have any proof that even that happened. Yeah. So 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 let's take another step back now because um, away from what happened because I mean these are the questions then that are swirling in your guys' minds. I mean there's all of these questions um, about sort of the nitty gritty details um, and the specifics about what's being alleged, but. We, we go from a really fast timeline in terms of what the police are doing with investigating and releasing um, an alleged killer um, who they've determined is now has used justifiable force in self-defense. And now let's talk about the long time frame, the long time frame it took for you to get information, documents, because um, we're, we're talking about um, January, February, March, um, yes. you guys are putting in um, the, the official form to get the documents yes. from the county attorney's office. So talk a little bit more about how, how suddenly the speed is now um, slow. Switch. Yeah. So I, I want to start with really January 5th. Okay. Because on January 5th, as soon as our family was notified and um, just just for a little background, Sean was taken off life support um, just before 9.45 in the morning on January 5th. Okay. And he was declared deceased at 9.45 in the morning. Okay. And that's Mountain Standard Time. Okay. Um, at 11.50 a.m., and we live in rural Nowhereville, USA, about almost 2,000 miles away. Okay. And... So at 11.50 Mountain Standard Time, our family was notified by our county sheriff that Sean had passed away at the hospital. Okay. And he was. we were given um, the name of the investigator um, to contact. And so we immediately started. And we started by calling the hospital because... It supposedly had just happened. And so when we called the hospital, um, they totally denied that, that he was there. Wow. Um, the, yes. And it was not just myself calling. My father was calling. My brother was calling. My sister was calling. And I'm sure there were probably friends calling for us as well. We were getting nowhere. We have no record, no information on a patient by that name. That That was their consistent um, response. Um, And we asked to speak with multiple personnel at the hospital, not just the nurses station. You know, we went, we wanted to talk to somebody in the emergency room. Can we speak to someone in your counseling? Can we speak to your hospital administrator, who's the head nurse. I mean, we threw it. And that went on from Sunday until Tuesday. Wow. Until Tuesday 
afternoon, Tuesday evening, when we finally got a return call confirming that Sean had been in the hospital, but that he had been released to the to the coroner's office and taken to um, a morgue, a local funeral home there in Missoula. So that is the first that, when you talk about the timeline. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can't even imagine as a family getting that information and having days go by to just get a basic confirmation that your brother what had been at the hospital. So it, yes, so right. from Sunday till Tuesday, that is that's incredible. Yes. Like, I, I, that's the first time I'm actually hearing that that time frame. Uh, and so, wow. Okay, continue. Sorry. And actually, we got an email initially from um, the the head sheriff, okay. and he basically listed a roster of about a half a dozen people that we could contact and get answers from. Yes. Was, was that your guys' county sheriff, or was that the Missoula County sheriff? That was Missoula County Sheriff. Yes. So that would be, yeah, and T.J. McDermott is the current um, sheriff of Missoula County, so... But that was um, that was actually uh, Corporal Michael Hatch was oh, okay. the one so, that sent out this email. Corporal mm -hmm. Michael Hatch and was the Hatch. one that emailed. Okay, yes, mm -hmm. gotcha. Mm -hmm. And there was about a, a half a dozen names on there with numbers, and also he included the funeral home and the hospital and everybody that we would possibly need to talk to in order to get some answers. And okay. and that's basically what he said. I remember yes. because we had kept calling him because we couldn't get the responses. And he said, I, you know, I sent you the email, yes, you know, you I, email? He, he tried to be very polite about it, but you could hear his intonation. Yeah. And uh, didn't you get the email? You know, why, basically, why are you calling me? You know, this just landed on my desk and I gave you all the information that you need to get the answers that you seek. Um, but that's not the response that we got from anyone on that list. And it didn't right. just land on his desk because he was actually the same one that went to the hospital when our brother was. Yes, he didn't admit. When we first found out, he didn't admit that he was the one that was there. So this, this is very, <laughs> very, very important um, to note. So Corporal Mike Hatch, um, and this, yeah. is, this is a distinction that I want to, I want to make for anyone listening, um, there are plenty of counties in this country um, where the sheriff's department acts also as the coroner, um, and 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 that has come into scrutiny in other counties where um, it's seen as a potential conflict of interest. And so, Missoula yes, County, absolutely. Missoula <laughs> County is one of those counties in which um, the sheriff's department um, wears two hats. They wear yes. the, the the sheriff's department hat and the coroner hat. And so it's incredibly important to, to say that, that Corporal Mike Hatch was acting that day as the coroner for the sheriff's department. So yes, he yes. was he was there at the hospital. Yes. Correct. He was called. He yes. was called and he was called by the, uh, the hospital okay. because they wanted to know about removing the ventilator tubes and withdrawing life support. So, so they so they, so they have the coroner phone number, um, but they don't have an internet connection with Facebook to to come <laughs> right. to, to, to talk to family. And right, um, yes. I'm trying not to I'm trying not to to, to have my tone sort of um, to, to betray that, that I just find that shocking. Um, I, I really do find that shocking. So um, so Corporal Mike Hatch then is is in in the room, um, and he's contacted by the hospital, 
and he does not really disclose that role to you guys initially. No, he pretended as though this just landed on his desk that morning. Yes. And he gave us all the numbers of people that we should contact to get answers, and he's not one of them. And, like it's, like so it's paperwork? Is, like it's just paperwork? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes, like it was just, you know, this is my job today, and I'm sorry for your loss, but this is just my job today, you know? Okay. Um, and so those are some of the things that make their narrative so unbelievable because it, it it's something that should be an easy answer so if you are con if you are first point of point of contact with the family of a loved one who is just deceased yeah you don't as a human being feel any kind of obligation to disclose your role in that that, that you know he didn't even say i'm not at liberty to share all the information right. no that was not what he said. No. He said, look at the email because it has all the information and all the names that we have so far, and those are the people you need to contact. And the, and but the, again... And the, and the fact that... You, so th this is some of the information that you guys then find out later. So his role is something you find out later. Um, when when did you guys um, submit the document to get the, the document... to get all the information? Because I know... Um, initially, you were told by the county attorney's office you did not submit the document, and then but but you guys had the screenshot showing exactly when you had submitted it. Yeah. Correct? Yes. So let me first say, in reference to the timeline, yeah. and I'm going to let Angela answer the question about our requests. Uh -huh. So first, and and we are under uh, really underestimating how many calls and people and departments yeah, and to, agencies yeah. that we called for no less than two weeks until we kind of got really strongly pushed back okay. and just said, hey, look, you're not going to get any answers for yes. at least 13 weeks yes. because it's going to take us 13 weeks back to get the autopsy okay. and the toxicology. Now, they were blaming the result of the, the, the slow result of the autopsy toxicology. on toxicology. Okay. So, it, it, so it, it's another one of those revolving doors that it, they pushed us through consistently in the process of just trying to find out information. So we literally had to wait. Right. And we did. We, it, well, other than contacting attorneys and things of that nature, anything that we could do on our own, we didn't contact the police or um, the, the state attorney with anything regarding the case until 13 weeks was up. So, so okay. after, bringing, after bringing the noise for two weeks, as, as yes. any family would that wants answers, um, you, yes. you took their direction and their timeline, you accepted that. Yes. And yes. you waited for that time frame to elapse before, once again, trying to get information. Contacting them. Trying to yeah. follow up with them. So, But what was interesting was... And they were a week late. I, I'm going to throw that in yes. there. They okay. were a week late. Yes. And we had to reach out to them in yes. order to get the information. Oh. Um, and w was that when he said, seek and you should... you? Yes, yes. ask and ye shall receive. Yeah, so... Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, we were we were waiting, you know, and and like I said, we were waiting on them. We weren't waiting on our own side. We right. had other things, you know, other ways to pursue this. And well, it sounds so like we you were, it sounds like you were being respectful of the process, and I commend you for being respectful of the process, considering at this point you had already not been shown a lot of respect as grieving family members. Exactly, okay. but we just felt like 
with our inability to be there. And in the course of that, the, the COVID-19 started popping up. Yes. And so we said, hey, let, let's just, it's in all of our best interests just to respect the process. And yes. so we did. Yeah. And so on that day, they gave us very baseline. I want you to share uh, a little of that. On on. On which which point? Exactly. Oh, when when they initially came back with the toxic with the oh. tox, toxicology and the uh -huh. autopsy, mm -hmm. it was just an insult. So all they were really concerned with sharing with us is cause and manner of death, and so they wanted to find a way to explain away the fact that he was taken off life support as well as how they handled the charges of Johnny Lee Perry. Right. Um, and so that was disturbing, but at the time they had given us no evidence. So here 13, 14 weeks out, we're thinking we're actually going to see evidence relating to why Perry is released. Right. You know, maybe something that confirms a need for self-defense. Um, but that's not what happened. Okay. What we got was um, baseline, uh, the cause and the manner of death. And then we were pushed back again in terms of actually getting any evidence. So at that point, what they said was, we now have to turn this over to the district attorney's office. And so you'll have to wait for her to review it in order <clears throat> for us to actually provide you with the evidence so, so, yeah, so, but at that point, then the district attorney, they hadn't received it. Um, and because I think, was was this March or April that, that this, this was, was kind of, a, it was March. This was in March. This was in March. So and, and, and I had actually review um, the notes, um, some of the writing, because the, the district or the county attorney's office didn't actually determine that no charges were going to be filed until May. Is that correct? That's, that's Wow. That's so, so from March and April that they're sitting on this information and you guys still don't have the evidence in hand. Exactly. No evidence in hand at all. Um, wow. And, and uh, yeah, so even with the, we were expecting to get autopsy. You would assume that might have pictures or right. something of that nature. That's not what we received at all. We had to request um, information ourselves from the hospital and what we initially got was simply what was going, what the death certificate was going to say. Right. So okay. we waited 14 weeks for them to tell us what they were going to put on this death certificate. And we also waited 14 weeks when we learned that at the hospital, they had already did a full gambit of toxicology yes. reporting. Yes. <laughs> All what? of that was already done at, already the, done at the hospital. Mm -hmm. Toxicology. Wow was done at the hospital. Yes. And so anything that they would have gotten back further, I, I don't I don't know what else they would have gotten. Yeah. We 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 we're still struggling to understand what more they would have gotten. I, I do know that that's not true. There are certain tests and certain uh tox screens that they don't get within a day or two. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't take four weeks. No. 
It doesn't take eight weeks. Eight weeks. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, and all of this is just so crazy because, I mean, think about this. Johnny Lee Perry is out walking free all this time. And exactly. you guys are waiting for more information to, to try and understand why he's out walking free. Um, why he's, you know, there's no charges and, and all this time, you know, they're just kind of sitting on this information and then you get a little drip. Um, but it's not what you guys were expecting. Um, not at all. when did Basically, you get this? We had a conversation with the prosecuting attorney's office, uh, as a family, uh -huh. we were all on a conference call. And, and that's when she basically had the, the lead detective on the line as well. And they were outlining once again, their narrative and, and this is what happened. And this is why we're not prosecuting. Okay. And we kept waiting for the, why we're not prosecuting because it seemed like the more they talked, the more they should be prosecuting the case. Yes. But we weren't hearing the wire wire. So we, as a family, were all asking questions to get some clarity and understanding. Maybe we're missing something. Right. So, but our questions were not being answered directly. Right. We kept going around in circles. And then it got to the point where the phone in the phone call, she basically said, Well, if you just see all the information that we have then maybe we can discuss this further if you have any questions after that because I have this you know file in front of me and if you're able to look at everything in my file then maybe you can understand where I'm coming from right. but it actually came off where she was sincere she was belittling us and saying that oh you know, yes and, and who is she who is she was. is this is this Kirsten Paps the lead <laughs> this was attorney? Celine Kopke the okay. prosecuting attorney with the, the prosecuting yeah. attorney okay Yes. And so, and, and so as you guys were trying to get information, she then takes this sort of position that, well, if you were looking at all of the information I'm looking at, you know, the stuff yes. that you guys are trying to get, um, yes. making it seem like because she's got more info than you do, um, then yes. you would just sort of naturally be on the same page. Absolutely. Um, yes. So, mm -hmm. so what happens then when, um, you do then get the documents and we, we have to talk about pictures of your brother and what happened to his body because um the official story again the reminder is that he was strangled from behind you refer to it as a rear naked chokehold or a rear naked strangulation um yes. and so at some point you finally do get the documents you get the images and um we, we should also say that right now it's sort of an open question about what you guys are able to share with the physical documents um, yes. So what you're going to do is describe what you saw. Yes. Um, yes. To be clear, we, we were asked um, specifically, uh, in order for us to receive the documentation, yes. we, we, we had to sign that we would not share the documentation. But what we saw um, was severe bruising on my brother, on both his frontal and his dorsal. From the top to the bottom. Yes. And so I'll, I'll start. Um, and take, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. This is, this is not easy. Um, it's been a long time. A long time. It's been a year. It's not, that's not that long at all. So in some ways it seems you're, you're not inaccurate yeah. because it, it's, it's so little time, and it's it's been a lifetime at it's the both. same time. It's both. So just and take a, take a breath. Still can't, yeah, we just still can't believe that 
this is what we are here doing. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's surreal. It's surreal that we're having this conversation. Yes. So he has a large bruise on his forehead. His lip looks like it's like been torn off. Okay. Um, severely, severe laceration is not the word. Okay. Um, it's swollen. It's it's bruised, it's and black. it was yeah, it was clearly bloody. Okay. Um, he has a stab wound in the side of his arm. He has handprints on the back of his arm. Okay. So much so that I can literally almost see the fingerprints. I if I had a microscope and knew how to do that were the forensics, yeah. You can show. you can see fingerprints on the back of his arm. Okay. He has severe bruising on the back of his body. Um, according to the autopsy report, he has several broken ribs. Okay. Um, and uh, his fingers, um, there's uh, like abrasive burns on the tips of his fingers and oh. dried blood in the palm of his hand. Jeez. Um, there, there are internal injuries based on the bruising that we see. Okay. Um, but I, I'm not, I wouldn't speak to those. The bruising that is clear on his back, on his, on the back of, on his back and on the back of his legs, okay. um, his shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it looks like a knee it looks or like an arm. It's down. something, it's something large. It's not, it's not, um, it doesn't look like, I don't know if you ever played baseball, got hit <laughs> by a baseball. It yeah. doesn't look like something small that could cause a bruise of that magnitude. It's it looks large. like something large. Um, it's a single, it's, well, it's not one single bruise, but the, the one, the largest one is a single a bruise. Object. Yes, yeah. it's not wow. several different bruises all in one space. So, so, uh, so strange you're, 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 on his arms. There's strange, yeah, weird strange looking. punctures on his arms. As punctures. Well. Is there any bruising around the punctures or do you just see like a little dot? No, it's not bruising. Like if you got an IV or yeah, something like that, right. like, no, it's not like that. Mm -mm. So this is just incredible because you're having now looking at these images to sort of fit what what looks like pretty significant trauma beyond what a strangulation would entail yes and you're having to fit that to the narrative and i think it's really important at this point to say sean was a a big guy he was 45 years old right 40 45 yeah, yes. um i saw a picture of him he's a handsome guy and um, yes. And he's in strong stature, pretty muscular. Almost, almost six feet. Mm -hmm. yeah, Johnny, almost Lee, six feet Johnny Lee Perry is a 29-year-old male. Um, when he was pictured um, in, in the county detention facility, just he looked to be sort of under the influence of something. I mean, his eyes were sort of lidded. Um, he looks a little scrawny. I wouldn't put him past 180, 190 pounds. Um, oh, that you're being very generous. I'm being very I, yeah, generous, and I'm not no a good judge of weight. Um, I mean, 145, yeah. maybe. No, I don't even think he weighed that much. Um, but I will take into account that he might have been muscular, so maybe he yeah. could be 130 or 140 pounds. 
but no, I and and I used to kind of. I, anyway, I there's 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 there's, there's no way that he weighed more than yeah. 140 pounds. There's no way. So so and, so you have to accept if if you're willing to accept the official narrative, you have have to accept that this 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 29 year old male who's significantly you know less strong than than your brother um, was somehow able to get the upper hand and to inflict the damage that you see in these images. And and to be fair, we don't know what happens in an altercation. We we right. don't know what kind of crazy strength someone might have, especially as the shelter is allowing people to be under the influence. So Correct. so we we don't know any any of these parts of the of the scenario, but um I would have to imagine it just doesn't fit. It it just simply doesn't fit not just what you've been told you know, this altercation was all about, but, you know, the official position from the county attorney's office, that that was justifiable. I mean, they're saying oh, yeah. that, that those wounds, that, that that trauma was inflicted in a justifiable manner. He was laying right. on the ground. His face was on the ground. The guy is behind him. And all of that's justifiable. Yes, and I might add that Johnny didn't have a single mark on him. And I, I even asked the authorities later on, I don't know if it was on the call with Kopke or not, but was there any marks? Yeah, yeah. did they document, did you document any question. marks on yes. No. And 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 no one. So there 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 nothing, Sean did not physically inflict to our knowledge any trauma on anyone else. No one has come to us and said, Sean punched me, yes. he did this to me, he did that to me. And no. Wow. Nothing nothing the police have documented or sent us at as evidence. Not even the witnesses have said that Sean physically put his hands on anyone. Wow. And and I do need I do need to if it's okay for me to back up. Oh, of course, of course. No, do whatever you um, need. There's a lot of backing up. Yeah, and, and I'm sure there's points that have been missed, but one of the things that just really struck me as I was describing what his body looked like is the fact that the police actually, according to their timeline, uh -huh. according to the official timeline, police arrived on the scene within three minutes of the first call. Mm -hmm. In addition to that... Um, the ambulance, the EMTs, they arrived within a minute of the police. Okay. So they were right behind the police, according to the timeline. Uh-huh. But according to that same timeline, if I give them those benefits, uh-huh. It took the EMTs eight minutes to get Sean help. Okay. To, no, start working. Yeah, on to, to to begin working on him, and so, in a situation where you you know you you arrive supposedly on time, you know, um, and we have made ourselves aware of how close the police department is to the Pavarello Center. Yes. They're not strangers to the Pavarello Center, so we made those questions clear with the police. You know, it, is it hard to get to the dorm? Did you have to go through something to get there? What would have stopped? What would have impeded you? Yes, what would have impeded you from getting to my brother and getting him life-saving CPR? Right. It took the EMTs 
eight minutes from the time they arrived at the Pavarello Center to, to give my to start giving my brother right. CPR. So and uh, so, I also I, I'm sorry. Well, I, I mean, I, I, there's so much more, um, and. In the sake of time, I, I don't want to cut you guys off because I just want I want everyone to know there there is so much more. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think at this point, um, the, the the next little part on the outline is I think what comes up when I've had conversations in the community here in Missoula, uh, when I've been talking to people, um, you know, I've talked to some reporters, I've talked to some other people about this. And one of the things they always say is, you know, has a family talked to a lawyer, right? Because you guys have now described some major, major questions you still have almost a year later. And the question that I've heard people ask as I'm talking about this, well, they've talked to a lawyer, right? Because it seems like that just is what people think. Well, you talk to a lawyer, if there's something there, a lawyer is going to take this case. And you guys have tried that route. Correct. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's it's that's been a very interesting. I, I, that's been a life shattering, life changing journey for me. Um, because we hold certain things just to be truth in this country, right? You know that there's someone there that's going to pursue justice when there is an obvious injustice that's occurred, right? And so our initial reaction as a family was to call local attorneys. And, you know, of course, quickly we were the, the, the across state lines, yes. all of those yes. issues came up. And people might and, not, people might not realize that. I mean, you have to find a, an attorney in the state where something happened. And so you guys are in another state. Um, you yes. reach out to people in the legal profession, you know, and they quickly say, no, yes. you need to find someone in Montana. Right. Yes. So you right. try and do that. And, yes. And and the initial responses were we had to pursue, you know, we are leaving messages. We're not getting phone calls yes. back. We're calling again and again. And then, oh, well, we don't handle that kind of thing. Yes. Right. And and so those were the initial responses for Montana. And then we were quickly um, contacted by an attorney on the Northeast coast. Um, and, uh, he, just to be clear, I don't, he hadn't heard of the case, but he was familiar with someone who knew our family. Okay. And so he reached out to my mother and offered his services. Okay. And not only that offered to find an attorney in Montana Okay. because he knew, um, he initially did think that he would participate in Montana as well. Okay. Um, but he decided to find someone there, obviously, to be a point of reference and and run the case, basically. And so after we released uh, the information that we had at the time to the attorney, which for the most part was just the medical record, okay. the only thing that we were given medical access record. to was the medical record and we had to pay for some incident and police reports from right. Montana, okay. um, which we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we sent those to the attorney. And 
uh, the, he was initially very responsive yes. and, you know, this was what he was going to begin with, but he had to do some reviewing and he would call us back to see what the next play would be. Okay. And after about two weeks, he called us back and he said, I want to take the case, but I can't. He said, uh, and we had already signed. Yeah, we you know, had just we, signed. We had, like, you know, they're going to represent fun. us. Yes. Okay, you would, so you would sign something to the yeah, fact yes. that they would represent you. Okay. Yes. And so when he returned our call, he said, the gist of what he said was, without the cooperation from local authorities, there is no way that I can do this. And so he told us wow. that he would con he would actually contact the bigger law firm that we acquired to find him and release all parties from litigation, mm -hmm. anything moving forward. And so we all as a family started calling again. And from a few attorneys, there are very few, um, uh, I can one hand, yes, um, expressed interest, and it was very scholastic, yes. you know, oh, this is so intriguing, it was yes. a very wow. scholastic interest, um, they recognized the injustice, but their, their willingness to put themselves out was clear that it was scholastic interest, if you will, yeah, Do you, yeah. does that make sense, it does, I yeah. really feel like that's important to point out, yes, this, it, it, it was strange. Yes. Well, it, it, um, so they were they were taking it sort of like intellectually, theoretically. Yes. You guys have maybe these legal questions, um, and and that's natural. I mean, I've I've interacted with some folks in the legal profession, and um, you know, a lot of times I think a cynic would say they're just they're there is there money in this for us, right? Yes. So um, because you yes. can either pay maybe up front, or you can um, they can take a case on contingency, and so. Yes. But at the same time, and again, I'm not a lawyer, you know, that statement to me just sounds so odd as a layman from that, yes. from that lawyer that, that without the cooperation, I mean, aren't lawyers, don't they have the law and can't they say, you know what, if you want to engage in a legal battle, this would be your option. You can um, engage in discovery after we, you know, file a civil case exactly. of a wrongful death or something along those, I mean, just... And again, I'm not why a lawyer, but need, but why do you need the cooperation of, of the police? Right. right. Why do you need that in order to press charges where there's clearly something egregious? And and I want to be clear too, we were unsure of where to point fault. We're still Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. And so, you know, we initially were just pursuing an attorney who would cover the hospital situation, because you would think, at the very least, a hospital should contact a family. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, based on all of our best advice from friends and other attorneys who couldn't pursue it themselves because they were out of state, this was kind of the direction. Yeah. Pursue this first, pursue this next. And we did that. We went down the medical yes the medical trail we went down the civil the the criminal we went down all of those avenues with attorneys in montana and were repeatedly basically told a, a cooperation story and then 
an attorney. I won't. Yeah, I won't. um, But then it became very clear that to pursue a medical malpractice, they needed to smell more money and and they didn't smell enough money um, to make it worth their while. And I'll leave it as simple as that because it's not as simple as that. It should not be as simple as how much money they can make because any any American should feel comfortable that if they if if something would happen to them, mm-hmm. a hospital would go, especially look at what's happening around you. Yes. Right. Yes. That you could know with confidence that the hospital is going to contact a family member to make sure that your wishes, if you are in dire circumstances, or even if it's not a dire circumstance, right. but just that your wishes and will are, are, yeah. are upheld. Yeah. And, and, and so to me, that's what I couldn't understand about the attorneys. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, as a family, we even discussed the possibility of not looking for anything for us. Yes. Just yes. to get them to pursue the case. Yes. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Well, and, and so what, I think it's really important that, and that's why I sort of, you know, got to the legal part of this because, you know, we can talk so much more about sort of the what happened, the, the, the timeline, but... I want anyone listening to this to know that you guys have, have doggedly pursued the legal angle. Um, and yes. as we are speaking, um, so this is this is going to be an audio file. I'm hoping it's going to be put out as sort of like maybe a podcast. And that means people are just listening. They're not seeing me. They're not seeing you guys. Um, and I'm going somewhere <laughs> with this. I'm going I'm going somewhere with this. Um, one of the options that you guys could could take is playing sort of getting the media attention because Sean was a black man. You yes. guys are a black family. Yes. Um, and that has not been something we have discussed or even brought up up until this point. You guys are not bringing it up. I'm the, I'm the white guy bringing it up. Um, but I mean, do you almost at this point feel like going that route of saying what more do we need to do to get attention to what happened because we as a family have gone all of the routes that we are supposed to go um we had a belief in these institutions and the authorities being upfront and straight with us about what happened we uh, almost a year later now have have done all of these things you've yes. become researchers you've gotten i mean you guys have done so much and you present the case well I mean, you're, you're still grieving the loss of, of your brother. And as you talk to me, um, I'm sure as you t- have talked to other people, you have presented the case in a compelling way that any family member would want the, the, the same questions you guys are asking to be answered. Any family member w- would want that. And so, I mean, are you at the point of, of almost thinking, like, is that the way to get attention? Um, <laughs> no, no, we, we've. We have talked about that a lot, and initially our thought process was absolutely not. Right. Even though it was recommended yes, that right. we Even play that card. Is and Sean, Sean going to haunt you? Is Sean going to come and haunt you in, 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 in some way and say, listen, sisters, if you, if you pull right. this, this crap. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but, but it, it, it's funny, but it's not it's, because, yeah. you know, it's 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 so relevant the timing of things that have happened this year yeah so absolutely it was it was 
I know that my sister and I specifically had had a conversation about throwing it out there just like that. Mm. And then like the next day, George Floyd got killed. Yes. Oh, wow. I mean, so things have happened just that closely. Yes. And, and, and that's when I said, I, we're getting there, but it's going to be on a much more thoughtful basis than just, we're black and they did this. Yeah. Because it is about what is happening to our people systematically. Right. And if there is any story that shows that it's systematic, this is it. Because look at the treatment that we've gotten from the hospital. Right. Who is protecting the hospital? Yes. And you have to ask yourself why. And you have to have an understanding that the lawyers, even if they wanted to, their hands are tied yes. because he doesn't represent enough of a corporation for them to stick his neck out. Why? Because of his color and his socioeconomics, perceived yeah. socioeconomic status. Right. Right. And so, yes, that is systematic. Yeah. It's not, uh, it's so much bigger than just seeing a black guy in the street yes. and thinking it was going to do something bad. Right. What we're seeing happening is a result of a system that is in place that is going to end up failing everyone yes. if you do not have enough money for it to be worth someone's while to pursue your protection, period. And, and that's why I think um, – and I, I'm sorry I had to sort of bring that up, but I, I'm, I'm, you guys have been so gracious, I think, in just being aware of the larger socio – economic factors, the racial factors that, that play in, especially in a town like, like Missoula, because Missoula, for anyone that's not aware, we, we are a like 92% Caucasian community. Um, we're yes. very white. Um, this is a, about 70, 80,000 people live in the, in the urban center, about a hundred thousand people in the county. So it's relatively, you know, relatively small. Um, and, you know, I, I never saw this personally as, as a racial thing. Um, to, I mean, there are vulnerable people at the shelter that are, are being harmed right now. Um, this has this been part of our conversation. Um, you know, after Sean lost his life, uh, there was a person with developmental disabilities that was sexually assaulted in the bathroom. Um, and then Lee Nelson, I mean, he's a, he was a 65-year-old man, white man, and he was brutally beaten um, after spending the night at the shelter um, by a, another resident who took advantage of him the next day. And so... It is a systematic thing, and and the shelter, you know, you guys still have so many questions, and I think it's really important to to, to indicate you don't even know where to go with it because, I mean, the hospital is a big institution. The county attorney is the seat of power about you know yeah. whether someone is prosecuted or not. You know, the shelter is sort of this this cauldron of of of, of trying to do the right thing to help people, but you know might through their good intentions, be also contributing to an environment in which um, people are not safe. And we have evidence because Sean is not with us and other people yes. are not with us. And I mean, it's, it's also important to point, I think that there were two women assaulted the night that Sean was attacked because they left the shelter because of what happened. They left the shelter because they felt less safe because of what happened to Sean. And that was an alleged um, incident but that man stayed under arrest for longer than Johnny Lee Perry. Yes. Wow. I also want to point out that Johnny Lee Perry is a so-called person of color. Right. And, right. and I, I think it's 
I don't know why that's significant yet. Well, I could mention a couple of reasons. Um, one uh, that I would probably get jarred for is just the fact that he got out of jail the next day. Right. Um, but also we were very careful to hear, I mean, we wanted the full evidence. We wanted right. to ponder everything the way they said. And we don't get body cameras. We don't get any of that. We get pictures of the courtyard and... I mean, it's just ridiculous what they sent us to try to claim that they did an investigation or, um, uh, you know, that they really presented us with something that would show us right. why, you know, Perry used justifiable force. And, and again, it's their official alleged story that Perry did this. That's their story. I don't know if he did or he didn't. This is the story that they've provided us with. Yeah. But it's very interesting as well that my sister made uh, made it clear and, and asked a question to Kirsten Papps. Uh -huh. Is it your protocol for your officers to wear body cameras? And uh -huh. she said, yes. And then she backpedaled and said, well, if they're working. Yeah, that was her backpedal. If, if they're, they're working. working. If they're that was working. her backpedal. However, on the um, information that we received back from Montana that we signed to get discovery of, uh -huh. um, they, they clearly notate that this officer had a body camera on, that officer had a body camera on, this one. Huh. But we don't have any body camera footage showing that they showed up to serve and protect. Wow. Yeah, nothing, nothing. You know, so if this is, you know, we're just responding. We're just responding. Yeah. Why aren't there cameras on? Why isn't one officer's camera on? If they're just responding, they're just taking care. They're, like my sister said, serving and protecting. You, you, you raised up a great point about intentions. And when you said it, you know, something I used to hear the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. I think about that phrase a lot. Yeah. I, and it's so it's so hard because I really believe there are people there that maybe they started with the right intention. Right. Um, but you you it's somewhere someone has lost their way. Yeah. And and you know this should not. We still don't have. So in the evidence that we received, uh -huh. it did not include anything from an employee of the Pavarello Center. Okay. Okay. There's no official story from the Pavarello Center. There's not even a clear, even with our hospital report, there's not even a clear, you know, this is the doctor or the nurse that took his care, and this is the person that we treated. It's, it's a, I mean, let me be clear, because there's, there's hundreds of pages yes. of it. Yeah. But there is a lack of personal response, if that makes sense. Yeah. And we still don't have anything from a doctor that, you know, really outlines for us Why? certain levels um, of consciousness, 
and why they did not contact the family. So, you know, when you say a doctor, you're, you're referring to like an attending doctor on the floor where Sean was at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, so, there's, there's, there's not a clear indication that a doctor oversaw, um, there's the, the, the a care, name on a, oversaw yeah, the removal think, of Sean from life support. I mean, there's no doctor. Let me be clear. Yeah. It is unclear, completely unclear who made the call to take him off life support okay. and why. There are names of pa- names on pages in the hospital report, but it is not clear who is taking responsibility. Does wow. that make sense? Yes, no, that, so that makes it's sense. Not, it, it, you know, yes, this guy's name is here. This person's name is here. Oh, this person administered medication or checked his pulse. But who made this decision? And not only is that not reflected in um, the hospital report, we still haven't received a return call. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Yes. From the hospital. Oh, I was his doctor. Now that this is no longer an ongoing investigation, I would like to share. Yes. You know, we understand we're, we, if it is, if it is just as they say it happened, those are difficult conversations to have. Yeah. But as his family members, we, we deserve, deserve that. We deserve that. And yeah. that is their responsibility. Absolutely. Um, but that is not what our experience has been. You guys are in such a difficult position because basically you are you don't believe the official story. You have documents that raise very substantial questions about that official story. You're limited in what you can share with those documents because of what you've signed. No lawyer in Montana so far has been willing to take the case. So are you supposed to just ignore that your brother was killed in Missoula, Montana, in a homeless shelter, taken to a hospital, removed from life support without family being contacted, and you're just supposed to be okay with it and go about live your life? Yes. In fact, an official from the NAACP, because we did go there. I mean, we have to go there. Right. Their official representative just told, told us point blank. If the police were involved, just forget about it. She said, I have been trying to tell people of color for over 20 years not to move to Montana because if something happens to them, there is absolutely nothing that we, I can do for them. And and she specified that. Montana. She specified yes. Montana. Yes. She yes. specified she three only, states, actually. Yes. But she was more emphatic about Montana than the other two states. And what she wow. said was, the only place worse than going to this state or that state is Montana for a person of color. Yes. Wow. That... You know, that would be very hard um, for a lot of the sort of, you know, white liberal people in Missoula to hear because, um, and, and I hate to say it in those terms, I'm, I'm, I used to be very sort of liberal minded as, as a younger person, but I've lived in Missoula for 20 years. I went to school here um, and I know that there is this, this, this sort of, you know, self-identity that's been created that, that we are just such a, a caring amazing community and that injustice like this would not be allowed to happen because we've elected amazing people. I mean, we've elected um, our mayor Engen, we've elected progressive people to our city council 
And we have a, you know, progressive sheriff, TJ McDermott, got his election, you know, against a more conservative candidate. And so, and so we have this political kind of, this political cloud hanging over this town that, that this tragedy then sort of deflates this, this, maybe that's not a good analogy, but it just, it's, it's hard, I think, um, it's going to be hard for people in this community to hear what you guys have been experiencing for the past year um, after Sean was killed. Let me drop another bomb. Okay. It's not just it's not just liberal whites that find that hard to hear. We've reached out to people in the black community in Montana. Yeah. I was flabbergasted at their response. Really? But they also sit the few people that I did contact are privileged enough to sit in a different bracket. Yeah. And so maybe they have a delusion about their protections. Yeah. So what what you know the last thing I want to assume is that the police were some kind of way involved in, in his murder. Right. But they are certainly complicit in not pursuing justice. So, yes, right. exactly. You right. understand? And, and to be quite frank, he was attacked on the 3rd, according to... to their story and what we have seen from the EMT record, which mm. in my mind, it may be naive with all of the lies that I know that people have told us, but in my mind, I, I felt like I could put the most confidence in those black and white, in those, those black and white do dots, what we got from the EMTs, because yeah. I felt like they're enough removed and because I know enough emergency responders to know how serious they take what yeah. they do. Yeah. And so that is why it, it blared at me and glared at me yes. so loudly, this timestamp. It doesn't make sense. But, but, but back to my point, the last thing. I, I'm, I was, we were not rushing to, oh, the police are involved. Yeah. That is, that is not, that is not what we were rushing to. But as this thing has unfolded and unraveled itself, I have no choice but to ask myself, how can they not be involved? And it's another important thing, and I will, we'll probably be wrapping this up in, in, a, in a little bit, but um, another thing that I really want to mention is around the same time, there was another incident, because if we're starting to kind of think bigger and, and see patterns of behavior, um, there was another incident in January of 2020 um, where two young people in a drug deal went into a bathroom. Um, ben Musso was the victim in this altercation where he was stabbed four times and he died. Uh, the guy who stabbed him, Josh Pagnown, um, is not being charged for the killing of Ben Musso by the county attorney's office in, the, in a very similar sort of situation in which they are saying that was justifiable use of force. Um, the county attorneys decided not to prosecute Josh Pagnow. They took that case to the state, and from my understanding, even though it hasn't been reported in the media, the state backed up um, the county attorney's office in, in, in saying that that was... Um, an okay determination. And so as it stands in Missoula, you can now strangle someone to death and you can stab right. them to death and you're right. not going to face prosecution by the county attorney's office because that is justifiable violence in right. self-defense. 
And so, yes. I mean, it's not just Sean. We've talked about systemic things happening. We've, we've, we've talked a lot today about very specific questions you guys have and answers you deserve as family members, answers that any family would want if their family member um, died and was you know, violently killed in the manner that Sean was. And so this is the start of the conversation. It's, it's important to, to also indicate that, um, that you guys are motivated to continue soliciting help. Right. Um, yes. To yes. to better understand what is going on in in this okay. community. Um, yes. And I want to just put out my contact information um, right now because uh, I have agreed to be the point of contact. If people in Missoula want to reach out, if anyone wants to reach out, um, I'm very familiar with kind of the ins and outs. And so my my email address is Will Skink. So that's W I L L S K I N K. So Will Skink, like the lizard, at yahoo.com. And so that's an email that I can be contacted at. Um, you guys are, are not in the state. We are very limited right now because of all the restrictions with the pandemic. Yes. Um, I know you guys probably wanted to be here in Missoula to see physically yes, where, yes. Your, where your brother was, was you know, yes. where he was living. I mean, he was living in our yes. community. He was working in our community, and he died in our yes. community. And yes. at some point, we're all going to get a chance to meet in person. Um, because I cannot let go of what happened. Um, and I also want to indicate that um, someone I believe to be Johnny Lee Perry tried to contact me through the blog. So someone making a comment um, with an email that indicated it was Johnny Lee Perry tried to sort of defend his quote-unquote brother. Um, and, and that's part of the information that, um, that is, is out there that, that I haven't really shared yet. I'm sharing that now. Um, because I think it's important to sort of also acknowledge that that I, that I have a role in this that that is is a bit personal as well. Because I worked at the shelter, um, I, I have a, a huge heart for the work that that, that people are trying to do, um, and I have the same questions you guys have. I don't understand how this happened, and I don't understand the reaction from people in in positions of authority, um, yes. and it just makes no sense to me. Other than the speculation that we're not going to get into now, but um, the speculation that, that we have we have shared with each other um, about what might be happening, so we can I think maybe leave it there. Is there anything else you guys want to maybe touch on before we kind of wrap up? No, not not on the not on the Skype platform. Yeah, I, I want to say that I I do respect uh, the work that law enforcement enforcement has to do, the work that right. shelter workers have to do, um, even the hospital. Right. But from all three of these entities, we don't have any level of accountability right. as to their negligence in connection with our brother's murder. And that, to me, is is inconceivable. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. So... Um, this will continue, and then I think um, if you guys would like to, you know, give me a give me a ringling. Um, yep. This has been a very very difficult conversation, but I I thank you for being willing to share to share this story because um, if anything positive can come from this, if any better understanding of what we can do to keep people safe when they are trying to um, come to a new community and 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 you know make a new life for themselves, you know, we we say a lot. Um, in terms of how we want to help people, especially in a community like this. And I've been a part of saying that. Um, but to actually do it, you have to face some hard things. And I think 
Um, with the recent tragedies that have been happening and what you guys have gone through in the past year, um, we, we need to face up to something. And it's not going to be easy, but it's worth it so that more people don't experience what you guys have experienced. So, exactly. So thank you. Thank you, and, um, thank you. and we will keep this going. Yes, we will keep it going. So there you go. That's the interview that started this podcast all the way back in January 5th of 2021. Um, it is now... Like I said, January 4th, 2022. And that was my interview with Jay Shell and Angela Stevenson, um, Sean Stevenson's sisters. Um, I have kept the conversation going with the family. Um, there will definitely be more coming out. Um, not sure exactly when, but um, I know that there is an ongoing uh, investigation now at the Department of Criminal, uh, the State Bureau, um, so DCI, Department of Criminal Investigations, um, is now looking into, from my understanding, um, the officer-involved shooting of Johnny Lee Perry, which happened on August 29th, 2021. Um, at that point, after that investigation is done, I believe it is sent to the county attorney's office. Um, really, I, I have, oh, just so many concerns in so many ways that I'm not going to get into now since we're pushing 100 minutes, but um, there you go. This is episode 16 of ZoomCron. I've been your host, Travis Matier. You can reach me at willskink at yahoo.com. That's W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K at yahoo.com. Um, and there will be more things to come on multiple fronts. So thank you for listening and stay tuned next week. Hopefully I'll have something new. Adios for now.